Can I just say my favourite thing in life is the Muppets. So every time that I sit with a, a mic, I always think of Muppets. Do you know the song, Manamana? Yeah. It's so good. Manamana. Do, do, be, do, be. Hello and welcome to Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? with me, Gemma Greaves, founder of Nurture and Cabal. This is a new podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. It's no secret that creating safe spaces to talk openly and share our personal stories has become a bit of an obsession of mine. So why uncomfortable? Well, quite simply, I feel we don't have enough of life's difficult conversations. We tend to avoid getting uncomfortable. We leave so much left unsaid. And let's be frank, you don't grow or learn anything new by staying in your comfort zone. I honestly believe powerful storytelling is a catalyst for change. So love that I get to chat to incredible guests who all have a story and who are all ready to sit uncomfortably. So let's begin. Today's guest is none other than Caroline Casey, the incredible lady behind the world's largest CEO collective and business movement for disability inclusion. Since Caroline launched the Valuable 500 in 2019, they have signed up 500 multinational organisations with a combined revenue of over £8 trillion. And with her team, she is on a mission to get business leaders to take full ownership of their agenda and to shed the constraints that stop inclusion from becoming a reality. I love that. A regular contributor and speaker of groundbreaking events such as Ted Davos and One Young World, it's fair to say she straddles the world of business and activism effortlessly. Caroline is also leading the charge to eliminate unnecessary sight loss as the president of the International Agency of the Prevention of Blindness and sits on several diversity and inclusion boards. She's also the proud owner of an honorary doctorate as well as multiple awards and accolades. And perhaps most importantly, she is one of life's best humans and in my opinion, the ultimate change maker, or should I say troublemaker? Troublemaker, always. always. <laughs> Welcome, Caroline. <laughs> oh, it's so good to be here. Just listening to you read that, and that's like the outside package. But I think I'm here because you and I get on in so many different other levels, and troublemaking is probably the connection. We've definitely done some troublemaking together, haven't yeah, we? we have. <laughs> so I have to ask, Caroline, are you sitting uncomfortably? Well, first of all, we're friends and we've always been very straight and honest with each other. And I know coming into this that I wouldn't be doing the spiel, as the Irish would say. I'm here to, yeah, I'm here to be as me, as Caroline, not the person who's defined by the work that I do, which is kind of uncomfortable. So I, I want to start this one with a story. It's fair to say I'm not a morning person. So when I was encouraged to go to the first talk of the day to an event where I was speaking later that day I was less than enthusiastic until this absolute whirlwind of a lady stepped in front of me on the stage I might add in very high stilettos 
<laughs> and leather pants. Can you put that in the And well? leather pants and a bright yellow <laughs> top. And I was just like, wow. I was just mesmerised from that first moment and I began listening intently to her story from starting as a management consultant at Accenture to riding an elephant across India on her own. And I just began to zone in on your energy. And then you said after, I reckon it was a good five minutes, that what the audience didn't know about you is that you're registered blind and that labels are for jam jars. And from that moment, I was hooked. And and we met straight after that, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, it was quite a stage, right? It really was that long stage. (laughs) And I I felt quite vulnerable and open. And but I remember saying, oh, I just, I could really do with a hug. You know, I'm a real hugger. You are. And I come off the stage and then there's this woman who's like, I'm here to give you a hug. And it was you. And I was like, oh yeah, I want a hug. And, and I think an hour and a half later, we, we were drinking gin and tonics in an Italian bar uh, at 11.30 or something. <laughs> and it was a really amazing moment for me. Um it was quite an instant connection with you, but I owe it to Jeremy King, you know, who, who took a huge risk on me, bringing me into this big event. And it threw down the beginning of the Valuable 500, you know, and all the people I got to meet in the UK and you being the CEO of the Marketing Society, you became one of our partners and through all of the networks and connections together, we've somehow made this crazy Valuable 500 happen. And I do see that as the beginning of that campaigning and from that moment on in May, it was a real big, heavy campaign. Oh, yes. And the lovely Jeremy King, our mutual friend who was the CEO of the Festival of Media, and I believe he, he actually still is. And I just need to add, I think it was more like midday, just for any <laughs> listeners to be. <laughs> oh, I actually do remember thinking it was just before. It was before. <laughs> it was before. <laughs> but I remember feeling like I'd met a kindred spirit yeah. and wanting to be part of the journey with you. You just had this infectious energy and drive to make change. I was just, yeah, I'm there with you and whatever you need, let's do it. You know, it was very untethered where I was then when I think back about that. That passion will always be in me, for sure. Like, I I can't help myself. It's just, it seems to be how I kind of roll up in the world. Some people think it's too emotional, which I used to apologise for. Some people used to say it was formidable. But that time when you met me in 2018, I I wasn't long back from the horse trek in Colombia, which is really what was the precursor to the Valuable 500. And, you know, my dad had only been passed maybe a year and a half. And I was still very raw. So when I said I needed that hug, I needed that hug. So what you were probably feeling, sure, was the passion, but it was amplified by the power of grief, actually. So I was full on in my yellow T-shirt and sparkly denim jacket. But yeah, very, very broken, actually, very heartbroken, I think. I remember that very well. So what do you think your defining moment has been? It, it It's strange, you know, I, I'm one of these people, I'm very lucky. I'm 51 years old now. By the way, I, I think That's age amazing. is a great thing because you don't give a shit as much what people think about you. You know, I'm, I'm, a rec- I'm a recovering people pleaser and I'm in the menopause as well. So it's just a whole thing. But when you get to this point in your life, you have so many incredible moments, good and bad, that define parts of who you are. 
except you're defined by none of them. They're like these sparkly lights on a Christmas tree and they're all add up together to make your life. And yet that being said, there are a few defining moments in my life that truly changed the course of how I approached my life. And one of them was the passing of Big Jerry, who was my six foot six giant father with size 15 feet, very unexpectedly. I would say before Jerry and after Jerry, it really did change how I looked at myself, how I looked at life and how I approached difficult things, actually. I, I was willing after his death to go into places maybe that I had strategically avoided through distracting myself with work and lots of other things. Yeah, I, it was a very defining moment. And without his passing, I am not sure the Valuable 500 would necessarily have ever come into existence. You always wear his, the angel wings on your, on your back. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, that date when we met in Italy in May 2018, I was wearing a yellow T-shirt with the word super across it, like in sparkles. But the other thing I was wearing was a denim jacket with two sequined wings. And they were bought in some random pop-up shop in Rome that Gar bought me, my husband, to say to me, no matter how scared you will be, you will always have his wings on your back. And if you can imagine, I've had to try to get 500 CEOs to be part of the Valuable 500. And I have worn some version of sparkly wings, either on my back, on that denim jacket, on a red jacket Jeff Dobbs gave me. I wear talismans of wings and sparkles wherever I go because in an essence, that pain was the electric sparkle that made this happen. Yeah, his his loss, because I never thought he was going to die like that. And I never thought he, the brick house that is his father of mine, would ever go. And certainly the way he went was so fast and furious. He burnt out big and bright. And so I feel like, I feel like the valuable 500 was in his honour. Yeah. And what an honour, because what you've achieved with the Valley Boy 500, you mentioned trying to get 500 chief sets. Well, you, you've done it, haven't you? <laughs> Do you know what we did? It, by hook a, or by crook. By hook or by crook. And I'm, I'm, can I just tell you, a lot of hustling and a lot of sparkly boots. There's another thing everybody knows about me is that I wear insanely coloured sparkly boots. Today I'm wearing very boring black boots. Actually, I'm very boring today enti- entirely. Um, you really aren't, Caroline. Yeah, but I generally, we hustled and we did it. And what people forget or don't know, it is the world's second business partnership after UN Global Compact, which is 14,000 companies. There is nothing like it for any issue in the world. And... It's with the accountability of the 500 CEOs to end disability exclusion. I mean, the fact that it was disability, that is this. I mean, people used to look at me when I told them our plans and I know they used to roll their eyes behind me, go, oh, bless. (laughs) Her passion is great. Her idealism is great, but there's no chance. And then to launch it on one of the premier stages in the world, which is the main stage of the World Economic Forum in Davos. I know they were going, oh, well, look at her. She's just so... She's just so passionate. But we did and we made it happen and we did everything to make it happen. Everything. And in that stage in Davos, who, who were the first person, was, was quite a big chief exec that said, yeah, I'm in. 
Well, our chairman is Paul Poman, yeah. who was passing of Unilever, and he is still our chairman. And I, you know what, when you're trying to make big, ballsy change happen, change that people don't really want, you can't change everybody's mind. I'm very impatient. I want to change everybody's mind. Sometimes it's finding the one or two people who go, I believe you. And sometimes you need that more than the 500 because you need the first person, your first believer, your first follower. And it was Paul Poman. I mean, what an incredible leader to have. And I mean, I rode across Colombia on a horse to find him and an infiltrated a stage. And there's magic around Valuable 500. But it was Paul Poman, I would say, and then Jeff Dodds, who was the first to write the check of Virgin Media. And I think humans, they both happened to be men, but they were humans who believed in pushing things to pioneer, to go further. They believed in their position as leaders to power other crazy adventures and they took a risk on me and I'm forever grateful. I have a lot of those wonderful people in my life. You're one of them as well. Many, many people don't understand that I might stand as the founder of this work, but behind me or alongside me is just this incredible group of people who are willing to believe in the impossible. It's been an incredible journey. So you have a real unique ability to bring together the intersection of head and heart. Do you think this has come from you trying to fit in with a secret? Yeah, it's a really good one. I, I mean, I'm obsessed with duality. I think I'm born between that intersection of logic and creative, I believe. I really believe in it. And particularly as a, as a person, you know, I hope that people will say that I had a big heart, but that I used my heart with strength. And I, I think to make any change happen, we have to hear the human reasons and the heart reasons, but we need to back it up with evidence and data. I mean, we're all obsessed by data now. So I think at the very intersection of all the work I've ever done, is it's compelling when I, when I feel the heart and it's backed up with science. But it's also a huge part of a lot of the secrets and stories that I've held. I, like every human, wants to belong as myself, I don't want to fit in. You know, I don't want to have to adjust who I am to be valuable, to be lovable. And so I think there's, that's the heart part of me. And then the head part is to scale that change that you want. So with the Valuable 500 right at its core is that I want people to belong uniquely and magnificently as themselves. But how do you scale that? And what is the, you know, the cost of that? And what is the science behind that? So, yes, I think there's strategies for me, but there's strategies for the work that I do. And a lot of people believe the work that I do is because I hid the fact that I was blind for a long time. But I have many other secrets I hide and and I think we all do. We all do. Yeah. 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 And when you say you hid it for a long time, can you give us, you were, because you went into management consulting. I know, I was at Accenture. I mean, I think, I hope Accenture are proud that they employed me. I think they are now. They're actually, by the way, Julie Sweet was one of the very first Valuable 500 companies on that launch date, 24th of Mm. January. So I was diagnosed with ocular albinism when I was six months old. TED Talk will tell you it all, but there's a whole thing called Johnny Cash. And there's a reason why that my mum and dad sent me to a mainstream school and did not tell me the fact that I had this vision impairment. Very much around, they didn't want their eldest child. They were trying to come to terms with what this meant to be defined by a disability. 
truly they dad was like you should never have to be limited by somebody else's view of you or stuff it's it's how you go into life with your your big art i found out by accident at 17 because he gave me a driving lesson which is so ridiculous considering I can't see your face and I have one and a half feet vision so I should never have been cycling a bicycle let alone thinking I was going to ride a motorbike and when I found that out at 17 honestly in 1989 the idea that I had to have a label of disability I just I just didn't understand and I saw how disability was viewed in the world and how it was treated and so I decided to go into the disability closet and I did a magnificent job of being in that closet and deflecting. And I stayed there for 11 years. 11 years of deflecting and distracting and using humour and being an overachiever. And everything was despite my eyes, despite my eyes, in complete fight with my eyes. Because if they knew whoever they are, they would determine what life I would have. And nobody has the right to determine your life. You own the pen to your story. You are the the one to write your song, your biography. And that's what it really underpins the Valuable 500 because I feel so strongly that I hid that for so long f- to belong, to fit in. And yeah, that broke me down the middle. It's exhausting trying to be somebody you're not. And Maya Angelou's quote, which I use all the time, there's no greater agony and I say that word agony than an untold story inside you suppressing secrets suppressing who you are covering who you are yeah it's painful it's exhausting it's also a huge waste of time (laughs) but uh, yeah it's it's agony look at the way it's driven you to go on and and achieve what you've achieved so well, and, because and your I, whole piece labels are for jar. That's all I can keep thinking when you're talking. <laughs> and it, I live my life by that now. People think it's my quote, labels are for jam jars. I'm like, it's no, it's, it's okay. Cases. <laughs> but you know, actually, I can't, I don't know if I can take credit for it. I used it in a TED talk. I say labels are for jam jars because I think I saw it in a beautiful piece of art years and years ago. We're multiple labels, right? We're multiple things. I happen to have a disability. I'm a woman. I'm blonde. I'm a brilliant dancer. I'm a useless golf player. I mean, I don't know, all those things. But to be defined by one element only limits our growth, right? It it limits your curiosity, your growth into somebody else because it's only one facet of who you are. And I think I was so worried that if somebody focused only on my disability, then they would, I would get locked into that and then all the other bits of me wouldn't matter so much. And to be honest, I've seen that to be true because I have a cane. Like I have my white cane. I've never seen it. <laughs> you have a few times. But very early on, I was really surprised then when I met you and we were meeting in an event and go, I'll come out and meet you or, I'll, you know, I'll see you there. And I was like, I never even asked you to do that, but you got that, even though you weren't necessarily trained how to do that. But you made it easy for me not to have to ask or use the cane. Actually, that's why, because you just seem to got it so early. But it was agony. I have to say there is a thing when you are hiding, always trying to distract people not to see that you can't see, like, and you've all these kind of really cute hacks and funny ways of being. And then you just realise, I don't have to do that anymore. But now that story 
is I, I definitely don't want anybody to have to be that way anymore. I, I don't want people, if they don't want to, to suppress part of who they are for fear or for shame. I mean, the biggest fear about what I used to have is you'll think I'm looking for attention because I've heard people say, you're not blind enough. You're not disabled enough. I've, I've been with you and... I was just like, you, what, what is that? Like, I didn't know there was a hierarchy of that to have. So, yeah, I just... Yeah, I was always worried that you'd think I was looking for something more than I deserved. Yeah, it's an incredulous society and, and people's opinions, but, but, but you're pushing through that. And it's reminding me of actually when Amy, lovely Amy Conroy, who sat in, yes. uh, in the studio, that was the first time I'd, and I've been friends with her for a while, that was the first time I'd seen her use her chair because she felt that she was desperately trying not to use her chair yeah. because she felt that that was a weakness. And actually now she realises it's a strength and she can be who she wants to be and no one cares. Yeah, I could really relate to a lot of what Amy said. And similarly, Sophie, just some of the things. Because, you know, when Amy and Sophie have a wheelchair, that's really obvious. Like, so people are making assumptions about them because they can see what they're using. Whereas if you just look at me right now and if you see me, if you see me walking down the street... You've no idea. But people forget 80% of disability is invisible. And there's so many people carrying things, like so many people. But I've been able to walk in both worlds and actually really understand a lot of the really negative concepts people have or myths around disability or, you know, so because I've been able to walk in, in two worlds. I've had my foot in both worlds, which in a way can be great, but in other ways, actually really hard. It's kind of hard because I have to come out every day. Hi, can you show me where the toilet is? And they're like, it's over there. I'm like, but where is over there? Do you know what I mean? You've got to come out all the time. So each has its, but that limbo land can be quite, quite difficult. I think for a lot of people, by the way, who are hiding parts of themselves. I couldn't agree more. It's reminded me of something I read, which was that you're on a mission to shape a society where everyone is free to be fully themselves. Yeah, like, like inner freedom. What would it feel like if we all had that sense of inner freedom? Because this idea of inclusion, because inclusion is all for everyone or not at all. We can't have these categories of inclusion or a hierarchy inclusion of what's more important than not. We all have very different experiences and they need to be respected. But it's like we need to create spaces where we aren't judging somebody else. I often think there's like the Olympics of drama, you know what I mean? And and are justifying our voices because we have different experience. We all are equal in that in that space. And our world's very difficult at the moment. I think we're all desperately trying to find individuality and the collective respect for everyone. It's it's really it's really hard. It's it's a very hard and very emotive. And I think people I don't know, does anybody else feel this but it's quite exhausting where we we're kind of processing so much feelings and information at the moment and trying to categorise that into simple bite-sized formats, but it's not. Humans, it's hard. Being a human is difficult and being the full-fledged human. So inner freedom is what I want for everybody. And if we were to have self-acceptance, that leads to inner freedom. And then I believe that would lead to inclusion. I, I do believe that because, but it's very hard. It's very easy for me to sit in the seat of privilege. I'm a middle-class Irish woman. I'm white, you know. That being said, my inner freedom has I've had to fight very, very hard for that because there's lots of other layers to a human experience that you might not see from the outside.
I guess that leads me quite nicely on to say nicely before uncomfortable, but 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 what what actually really makes you uncomfortable? There's a lot of things that make me really uncomfortable. I think the first one is that that Amy and I, Amy might have referred to and I would talk to, is I'm constantly trying to balance being strong and being vulnerable. Mm. Like I find it really hard. Like I find it uncomfortable asking for help in, in, a, in a way. I still struggle with that. I'm much better now. So that's my first big one. I'm uncomfortable at the moment and I'm very vulnerable when I speak about this because I've lived a life for 23 years as an activist in lots of different ways. I've been defined by that, been defined by this story. That's why I'm trying to undefine myself is how do we undefine ourselves? I'm not the elephant girl. I'm not the, the cow girl. I'm not the valuable 500. But what am I, Gemma? What am I? When everything I, I work towards is about, you know, encouraging us all to it's who we are, not what we do. I mean, these are the lines I've used and I'm now uncomfortably in that place of going, gosh, you know, what next? And that's not to say I'm leaving the Valuable 500, but my role as the founder is very different. I think there's something else coming, but I don't know what that is. And so when people say to me, so what are you going to do next? Because they're so used to me, you know, I'm going to get 500 companies. I'm going to go across. No, I'm going to do this. And don't know. But isn't that in the beauty of, you know, writing that story and, and, and being part of that story, not knowing quite what's next, but you know, knowing you, that it will be exciting. It will be adventurous. It might even be calming. Yes, I know all of those things are true. And I, and I know that. But what makes me uncomfortable is really sitting with the I don't know. I've been so driven, such a purposeful driven person. My brother says, you're lucky because you have purpose. And I thought everybody had purpose. I didn't know that that was, I was lucky. So I'm really uncomfortable in this place. But the other thing which has caused me to make huge mistakes in my life, I'm really uncomfortable in making people unhappy and making big, yucky decisions that might hurt people fast. I am deeply uncomfortable. I try to find the best way to do it. I'm a second time married person, so I had to exit my first marriage, which was very difficult. So hard, so hard because I didn't want to cause pain. I didn't want to cause hurt and I made it more difficult by spending too long exiting big business decisions where the team might not be right or where something isn't right, I've put off because I'm so desperately not wanting to cause pain. And as I've grown older, it's the thing I have to work on, being decisive with tough decisions that may cause pain to other people, but they need to be done, you know, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned at the beginning recovering people, <laughs> people pleaser. pleaser, but that comes from you being kind and compassionate and wanting to make people happy, and also for people to to like you and like what you're doing together, right? Yeah, I mean, it's that. By the way, just saying that makes me uncomfortable. I mean, it, oh, I mean, I'm so icky with it, you know. But it's so true. It's so true. I, 
I ser- I'm a I'm a child of an alcoholic, so I'm the eldest of an alcoholic, and my mom is 35 years sober. Extraordinary! Shout out to my mom, amazing human being for that. You know, so few people stay in, in recovery, but I am a, a very typical profile child of an alcoholic. You know, one of mine is that I'm a fixer. Well, let me fix it. You know, I don't want. I'm always trying to fix things for people rather than hold a space and listen. Sometimes people just want to be heard in that pain, not to go fix it. So that's the thing I've learned. But the thing is, you're right. I I don't not like being liked. I'm better at it now. Definitely better at it now. Oh, that makes me feel so icky, but it's so true. I hate... There's nothing wrong oh, with that. Oh, God, I feel so embarrassed to say that's true. But I... Yeah. And, and by the way, when you're doing this big activism work and when you're a leader of a business, get used to not being liked because you've got to get over yourself you know you taught me that I remember you saying to me there's a lot of support for you but there's also people that want to bring you down and there's also people that are there not wanting you to succeed and I at the time didn't realize that I was like no everyone's lovely and everyone wants to (laughs) I mean I feel uncomfortable saying that now because that's so damn naive but um I just thought that everyone was on this mission with us to create change and to have a bolder braver industry and you said nope there's there's people that are out there that are not haters but they're the the naysayers they're the ones that don't want you to succeed they might be jealous but you helped me realize that because I've had people say that to me as well and Get over yourself, Caroline. Get over yourself because it, often that's not about you. It's about them. And I also think it's it's arrogant of me to think that you could have everybody like you. We're too different, you know. Mm. But because I think when you come from a place where you've had early wounds in childhood and I think there is something in that. But that means go do your work. Like go do your work. Like I am a real advocate. Go do the work. Get in. Do your counselling. Do your coaching. Do your therapy. I mean, make a part of it. Own it. I own it. It's great. I mean, I remember my most uncomfortable conversation of all time. Oh, and this is really icky. The icky one is people don't talk about jealousy and I'm fascinated with jealousy. And particularly in, you know, when I was saying to you, it's like people will be jealous of maybe what you're doing. Not because it's you doing it, because maybe it's a reflection going, oh, I wish I was doing what Gemma was doing. And I think when people do things that you really, you admire, and maybe you don't have the courage at that time it's easier to be jealous, isn't it? And I don't like that about myself. I catch myself doing that. They're real human emotions, but get underneath it. Like, what? why? Why are you jealous of that? You know, stop making excuses, Casey. Get off and go do what you think you could do. Don't look at her and in your mind be jealous of it. Go find out a way you can do what she or he is doing, you know. But that's where there's strength in vulnerability. Yeah. Because it's when you can show that vulnerability and have that courage. You can have these courageous conversations that actually I do feel jealous sometimes and that's okay yeah and normal it's so great I I am more comfortable in my own skin but I'm only more comfortable in my own skin because I'm finally being able to be uncomfortable and have the uncomfortable conversations and I actually hope that I might be a better friend a better family member, a better partner and a better leader because I've willingly faced into my uncomfortable stuff. And you create a space for others to yeah. be able to do the work, to be able to admit what's going on, to that fear of being judged. We all fear it. But but if we do that together, if we say, well, actually, I feel like this, oh, me too. And then all of a sudden 
we help each other. Yeah. So like one of my big things is getting CEOs to talk about their experience of disability. So we know that 7% of our CEOs have lived experience, but four out of five of them are hiding like I did 20 years ago. Now, what does that look like if a CEO comes out and tells their story? To your point about permission. And that just happened in Davos a few weeks ago where we had Julie Tiegler, who's a leader within EY. On this panel, just discloses she has a disability. Amazing. And we didn't even expect it. But the impact, the permission she gives to everybody else and that multiplies and ripples. And that's the whole point is the permission we give when we do our work, when we face into our fears and we have the uncomfortable conversation. It allows others to do the same. Why do we feel we have to hide it? Because, you know, I was listening to stats before one in four, that's 1.3 trillion of us are in some way, you know, all the stats better than me. 1.3 billion. 1.3 um, billion. So that's about... Slight difference, bit. trillion and billion. It's okay, it's all right. <laughs> I'll, I'll move that along. It was a T instead of a V. I'll say um, that again, 1.3 billion. billion. So. <laughs> so that's just under, between 15, around 15 to 20% of our global population, give or take. But if you add a mum and a dad to that, okay, just two people that love somebody who's a disability, we are talking about 54%, okay, of our global population. And then you put age on top of that. And let's be honest, after 65, things start not working as well. But every single person in this world is going to experience disability at some time. And why? Why is it still such an icky topic? The uncomfortable truth about this is that it is uncomfortable. So how do you, you've talked about the conversations with chief executives and, and people you're working with and, and various others. How do you approach these uncomfortable conversations that you know that you need to have? I can tell you every CEO I ever got in front of, they all said yes and they all signed the Valuable 500. This is everyone. true. <laughs> no, no, every one of them. I used to say I'm like the CEO hunter. That being said, remember, we spoke to 3,000 to get 500. So there's 2,500 who said no, just so you know. Um, there's quite a big wait list of people that want to get oh, in no, it there is. now, oh, right? now, but no, sure, now it's proven. So the Valuable 500 is based on two key things, fear of missing out and then safety in numbers. Like that is it. It, is, it literally is anthropological. There's no doubt. So that works when you look at a CEO. But I tell you, it was two things that always worked is I would look at them in the eye and just slow my speech down because you can hear I speak up really quickly. And I spoke to them as a human beings and you strip away their role and you stop talking about the corporate spiel and just say, you know, tell me about what would make your child or your godchild or your little sister or brother proud of you. And then suddenly you see the shoulders drop. And the other thing we used to say to them and we still do, you don't need to have all the answers. How about that? I don't need you to know anything. I need you to do something. So stop trying to have the answers for something you don't, except you don't know and accept that you must begin. Literally making the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. But it's, but it's admirable and it's about people, humans, and making those connections and taking away all the bullshit, quite frankly. Yeah. I think one of the biggest barriers for anybody doing the Valuable 500 or any big change in life is there for the Valuable 500, we're not doing enough yet. So it's like, come back to us in five years. I'm like, no, 
I'm coming back to you now. And I don't care if you're doing the tiniest thing, but take that tiny thing, tell us about it, report on it, and then we can measure your success. But don't sit on the fence. Do not sit on the fence because the damage of sitting on the fence and looking around at other people hoping they're going to do something. No, because if we want to be part of creating a world, truly, genuinely, that we all can belong in, every one of us has a role to play. Every one of us has something that we need to do in it. And for you, as the, because CEOs are the most powerful people on the planet, I kind of believe, let's be honest, they're more, more powerful than politicians. They can make change happen in moments. So if you're to get a collective mass of 500 CEOs to be accountable... Well, we might. (laughs) We might actually get something done. But if you're going to go in there and go, that's not my job. I'm going to wait until somebody else does it. No. Perfection is not going to help. The best thing that anybody has ever said to us in the Valuable 500 was Peter Grauer, the chair of Bloomberg, main stage Davos, turned around and said, I'm really proud of A, B and C, but I'm not proud of what we've done about disability. And actually, I don't know what to do. And the five CEOs sitting around him, they just went, <gasps> they literally, you could just, there was an intake of breath, their shoulders dropped and they leant and they were like going, oh, but we don't know what to do either. And I was like, there you are. There you are. When you're stopping playing the role, when you're being the human, there you are. There's the magic. And we can't possibly have all the answers and that's okay. Isn't it? But admitting you haven't got all the answers and creating that space for others to say, I don't either, but let's do something about it together. Well, we need to be able to admit that we we don't know. Yeah. Uh, and we don't know. And I I remember when we when we, had, we got the Valuable 500, everybody was saying to us, so what next? And I said, well, I actually don't know where we're going to create our greatest impact. And so we went searching and asking and investigating. And now we know. Oh, now we know. Absolutely. But in that time, we didn't know. And how would we know? And I don't need people finger pointing us going, oh, right, what are you like? It was more about just give us some time because, first of all, we created history by ending the CEO silence on disability inclusion. We built this. Nobody believed we could. So let's just not know for a while before then we pin our flag to a mast. I want us to do the most complex thing because that's what we should do with the opportunity the Valuable 500 poses for us. I don't want to do easy. I want to do hard. I know we won't end disability exclusion in this lifetime of mine, but I don't want to take the easy road because disability exclusion is about human inclusion and that's doing the hard stuff. Yes. So I'm about to give you another one of those hugs that started our relationship in the first place. <laughs> um, but first, I just want to ask you, why is it important for brands and leaders to get uncomfortable? Because underneath it is the magic. Underneath the uncomfortable is the insight that our brands run for, is the sacred sort of light that you find in phosphorescence. You know, everything about the work I do is around phosphorescence and murmurations. But I'll give you Leonard Cohen's quote. Forget your perfect offering. It's the cracks where the light gets in. And Leonard Cohen, who I've always loved, died just several weeks after my father. And I can honestly tell you, it's through the cracks, the uncomfortable, that the beautiful inspiration, the glory of moments, the exceptions, the the blazing light you'll never forget, the friendships that you never thought you would have, the discovery of yourself. But if brands get uncomfortable, they will find that juice in the human beings that are there, in the stories that they tell, in the customers, the suppliers, the employees, but in, in uncomfortable 
is the beautiful, for sure. And I am testament to that every day I live. So what's next? What's your next big, hairy, audacious goal? The most uncomfortable thing professionally, I think, that I have ever done. Though everybody would said there was nothing more uncomfortable than suggesting you get 500. Well, if I want our companies to be accountable, right, our 500 companies, then we have to be accountable. So I've set out a challenge two weeks ago that on the 3rd of December in 2025, which is just less than three years away in Tokyo, we, the Valuable 500 team and organisation, will report back on what our 500 companies are doing against three challenges, which is about getting leaders with disability into the C-suite of tomorrow, ending the hole on disability data in business, and increasing representation of disabled people in external brand communication. Now, I'm challenging our companies to do it, and I will hold us to account, and we will have the biggest accountability event of all time for disability business inclusion. And as I say it, I am terrified. But when I'm terrified, then something might get done. So no small thing then? No small thing. (laughs) But you know what? Never underestimate the power of an audacious hairy, scary goal to kind of put a bit of fire. And then make it public. as, as And I've as, done that, so yeah. I'm doing it again. Yeah. So that's what's next. And what's next with Caroline as I come back as the founder? I don't know. I don't know. But I think there's a, there's a lot of dreams. And I hope one day I'll come back and sit in this chair and something to do with Dolly Parton might be part of that next stage. I love that. I love that. You've been so inspirational you just warm my heart and I think you know that any journey that you're about to go on with your goals and vision I want to be right there alongside you well, you already are I'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> honestly you just inspire me and I know you're going to inspire all our listeners um, and as much as I don't want this conversation to end I think that is the perfect place for it to end so thank you so much Caroline I hope you enjoyed being part of sitting uncomfortably Well, now I've unfolded my legs because I was actually very uncomfortable. So it's a perfect (laughs) end. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Gemma Greaves and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a Fresh Air production. And the producers are the gorgeous Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh. We're new on the scene, so if you enjoyed this podcast, which I really hope you did, I don't see how you can't, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us and all that great social stuff. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests. And I want to have these uncomfortable conversations with these incredible people like Caroline. Thank you so much. Until next time.